When we hold on to grievance and pain from the past, we keep ourselves from being able to really move into our fullest expression of self. We need to practice forgiveness from the soul recovery perspective, dissipating the energy and releasing the past for good. If you're interested in this profound transformation, I invite you to join me in Colorado the weekend of June 8th and 9th to have an incredible experience with others on this same soul recovery journey. Two full days of immersion in the soul recovery process where you will indeed leave transformed. You will be able to truly let go of these old pains and step into a new way of being. Check out the show notes for a coupon code and how to register. Welcome to Recover Your Soul. My name is Rachel Harrison, and this is a podcast offering inspiration, strength, and hope through the tools of recovery, spirituality, and positive psychology. I started recoveryoursoul.net after having profound positive changes in my life from my recovery of alcoholism and control addiction. I was guided to share these tools with others through this podcast, as well as offering personal coaching and spiritual counseling. Personal recovery does not need an addiction to use the tools and principles to better our lives and transform just the desire to make positive changes and grow. I'm an ordained minister, and I continue to study and deepen my relationship with the spiritual principles that have brought me a life of peace, happiness, connection, and abundance. I know that together, we can do the work to recover our souls. I have a special episode to share with you today. Today is Mother's Day 2021. And I sat down yesterday with my mom where we had lunch outside. It was the first time that she had been to a restaurant outside since the pandemic. And we just had such a lovely afternoon. And I wanted to share with you a little bit about my mom. As you know, I was raised Buddhist. And this is a conversation about how she became Buddhist what that journey was like for her, and what it's like now. I hope you enjoy it. It is Saturday, the day before Mother's Day, and I am sitting here with my mom, Linda. Hi. And I was inspired to have her on the podcast as we were having lunch together today and just thought, who would be more interesting to talk about than my incredible mom and to honor Mother's Day? So... As you know from my podcast before, my mom is Buddhist. I was raised Buddhist. And I want to know that story. I want to understand from you how that journey happened. And you have a great sort of introduction story that could kind of start us out. Okay. In 1978, I I felt impelled to go on a three-month journey pilgrimage to India with my best friend, Kate, who's also a Buddhist, and left behind my eight-year-old daughter, who I was very close to, but I left her behind for three months with her father and a month with each of her grandmothers. And during part of that time, I was staying at a monastery in India, just below Darjeeling, We stayed there for six weeks, and this monastery was quite impoverished, as many places are in India, and it had a stupa, which is a a structure that um, 
usually contains some sort of honorary relics and um, is a symbol of the enlightened mind. And people circumambulate stupas as a meditation process. So there I was on the other side of the world uh, from my daughter and my home and everything familiar that I had grown up with in this exotic, impoverished place in India, circumambulating this stupa. And I asked myself the question, how did a nice girl from Oklahoma end up here? That's a good question. Because it was a very unlikely um, string of events. If you look at my beginnings, I was born in 1946 in Oklahoma City, very middle America kind of place and family. We lived uh, semi-rural, uh, five acres on the outskirts of the city and um, had gardens and pecan trees and chickens and really wonderful kind of rural extended family, my parents uh, and my grandparents. At the same time, <clears throat> I went to um, private school on the other side of town on scholarship. Was it a religious school? It was, uh, many private schools have some sort of church affiliation. Mm -hmm. This one had an Episcopalian affiliation, which... Um, if you are a connoisseur of religions, you'll know Episcopalians are quite liberal. Okay. Yeah. And then did your family, I don't actually remember you talking about your family going to church. When I was uh, quite young, um, like six, seven, eight years old, uh, we went to Methodist church on Sundays um, and then we kind of fell out of that, and then we kind of fell back into it at various times. But it was always a very um, relaxed sort of thing. Um, my mother, in her older age, said to me once, well, I really want to believe in God, but I don't know if I do. Oh, <laughs> so we kind of went to church because that's what good people did. Mm-hmm. But we weren't uh, extremely committed. Did your family talk about heaven and hell or use those as ways to keep people being good? As I know a lot of people in their upbringing felt like the religion was the way to temper behaviors? No. No, it wasn't used as leverage in any way, either for good or bad uh, behavior. It was really a very low-key thing in our family life. My, I, I, my mother and, and, and my grandparents, I think they really wanted to be good people. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be honest and hardworking and self-sufficient and uh, trustworthy and so forth. And good people went to church and believed in God uh, so that, they kind of followed that route, but not with much conviction or or commitment, I'd say. So you were incredibly, are incredibly smart and, and skipped grades and 
were to college at 16 or 17? 16. 16. And, and that in the fierce independence in you started before you even went to college. And that drive, that curiosity for something spiritual started around that time. What was that spark that started that for you? I can't say that there was a particular incident or spark. I would say that it it was kind of an underlying um, intention in my life that just became came to the surface and became more clear as I matured from, I say, childhood into high school and college mm-hmm. age. Um, one of my first ambitions as a child in terms of what are you going to do when you grow up, um, I, I said, oh, I must only have been 10 years older, so I said I'm going to be a chemist. Mm-hmm. Now, where in the world did I get that idea? I didn't know anyone who was a chemist. Uh, I have no idea where I got that idea from. I do remember at some family gathering, I realized that some uh, cousin of mine was in high school taking chemistry, and it got him to start teaching me the symbols for the elements. Interesting. But what I think that was the beginning of my spiritual drive in terms of I wanted to know what is the true nature of existence. That's a big question. That's a big question, and uh, I don't have the answer all these years later, (laughs) but I do think it's been the driving force uh, in my life is wanting to know what is the true nature of existence. And in the beginning, I thought you found it through science. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why I chose chemistry, but I I know that I chose science because I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to know what is real. I wanted to know what the world is made of or how the world is made or what is the meaning or all of those profound kind of questions. So even in high school, I knew I was studying for chemistry as a career. Mm -hmm. So then you get to college, you're studying chemistry at University of Oklahoma, um, and that fierce independence happens. You move out of the dorms, move into an apartment, discover my father, (laughs) and... um, and this was this was the beginning of the beatnik period. This was the beginning of the the change, the enlightened time of the mind, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and during that time, there there wasn't Buddhism yet, right? They weren't talking about that yet. So, what were you guys talking about? What were the well, conversations? Buddhism existed. <laughs> yes, but it wasn't hadn't been brought to America in in mass yet. You're absolutely right. 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 You're absolutely right. Uh, My college years in the uh, 60s, mid-60s, were right in the beatnik area. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was a wonderful time. We went to coffee houses. People played acoustic guitar and sang folk songs and read poetry and talked about philosophical issues like what is the true nature of reality. Which is metaphysics. Yeah. Yeah, which is the foundation of metaphysics. Yeah, you know, exactly. Who are we? Why are we here? Yeah. We should remind people that they may already know your listeners that your father was a, a folk singer, a guitar player, musician, who had uh, just gotten out of the army and came to visit a friend who lived in the apartment across the courtyard from me. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think I hadn't quite 
didn't know that story that detailed. Yeah. Somehow I just thought he arrived. Well, he did. Yeah. He just arrived in my life <laughs> uh, and moved in and spent one night and never left. <laughs> <laughs> and so so you finish college and you and my dad go off in the world in search of this new beatnik life. And to me, those years were really about spirituality and about those fundamental questions. And were you thinking then like you were when you were circumambulating the stupa, like how did I kind of get here? Or was, did it feel like a completely natural progression for you to be moving towards whatever this, these, these questions that you wanted answered? Well, before I left college in my last semester of college, three and a half years total to graduate, uh, we have to bring in psychedelics. Hmm. That's when it changed from the beatnik era to the beginning of the hippie era and the psychedelics. Right. Um, and the whole reason that I took psychedelics for the first time and a handful of times thereafter, mm-hmm. or two handfuls of times thereafter, was always for me a spiritual search. Um I had always thought that science was going to teach me about reality. And the very first time I took LSD, I realized that it was my own mind that was going to be the key to understanding reality. And were were people talking that way, or you really came up with that all by yourself in that experience? Well... Both, I'm going to say. My first experience was very naive, let's put it, let's say. I didn't know anyone that had done it before. It just showed up on my doorstep by someone passing through town, Mm -hmm. um, and I went for it um, because I was always searching for information, knowledge about reality. So my first impressions are were mine. They they were my realization that my mind had many more dimensions than I had ever imagined, and that science was only one level of reality, only one dimension. Interesting. That within my mind there were many, many levels and dimensions of reality. So that was really my own realization, but very soon people, many people were talking about Mm -hmm. it. You know, we have uh, Timothy Leary and uh, Ramdas and, and, and the Be Here Now and the psychedelic uh, dreams and, you know, right. the whole phenomenon exploded really across America. As a spiritual path, as a searching for those answers, as a, as a society wanting to deepen their spiritual connection. For many of us, I'm not going to say that everyone uh, was searching for spiritual uh, answers or reality. I think some people were just on a trip. <laughs> <laughs> but many of us, um, and in- definitely including Leary and, and Ram Dass and many of the leaders, r- really uh, were trying to use it as a way to explore and understand our own minds. And did you did you discover Buddhism 
when you were in St. Louis, or was it not until you came to New Mexico? Um, let's let's make that story a little more continuous. When I did graduate, barely in that last semester, having been a, a star student, um, that last semester after taking psychedelics was a matter of, well, let's just scrape through to the end and get my diploma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for the next phase. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I did. And I took a professional job as a chemist for Monsanto and moved to St. Louis. Right. And we lived in an urban renewal project um, in St. Louis that was managed by a very um, advanced uh, thinking guy who wanted to inhabit this new urban renewal project with all kinds of people of, of all professions and races and um, so forth. Mm-hmm. And so he instantly saw in my husband, Jerry, Rachel's father, uh, a musician who could uh, manage the coffee house in the, in the project. And in return, we got free housing. Nice. And in the meantime, I started working at Monsanto as a professional chemist. Monsanto was extremely conservative, corporate America kind of place. And I would go to work, um, and Jerry would manage the coffee house and hang out with the hippies and the jazz players and the poets and have people in our house all the time. And I quickly realized that they were all having a lot more fun <laughs> than you were <laughs> than I was going to work at this very conservative, boring place every day. So I quit. <laughs> I've actually made uh, in my lifetime quite a few sudden, abrupt uh, changes like this mm-hmm. um, because because I saw the direction I wanted to go and went for it. That's that fierce independence. Yeah. 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 And then, so just to sort of get to the Buddhist part, and how long were you in St. Louis before you moved to New Mexico? We were in St. Louis for over a year, maybe a year and a half or two. I'd have to think hard to come up with the dates, but... Less than two years, I'm going to say. And then what was the drive to go to New Mexico? Um, Someone came through town. Now, Jerry, with his personality and and his uh, hippie nature, was always uh, running into people and meeting new people and inviting people to our home, either uh, temporarily or for longer than I always wanted them to stay. (laughs) Um, and someone was passing through town and ended up at our house and started talking about how they were on their way to New Mexico. They had actually come from Oklahoma, by the way, although I did not know them back there. Mm -hmm. They had come from Oklahoma. They were passing through on their way to New Mexico, and it was going to be the land of promise. Mm -hmm. It was going to be where we were all going to get land and build our own houses, and it was the the back-to-the-land movement Mm -hmm. and the spiritual movement, and it was going to be like the New Age promised utopia. And it was very, very 
compelling mm-hmm. and seductive and exciting. Mm-hmm. And we pretty instantly decided that we were going to do the same thing. Interesting. Now, I did have a job at that time. I was teaching physics in a private girls' school, which was um, actually a much more uh, comfortable situation for me than the corporate world had been. So we had to finish out the school year. And then we packed up and moved to Santa Fe. And then when when you got there, what did it feel like? Did it feel like it was another place that was having that kind of spiritual um, rebirth of a location was was a bunch of hippies out there. It was that was nineteen sixty eight, I think, or sixty nine, because you were born in seventy. I was born in January of seventy. Yeah, um, we were part of the first wave. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say of the hippies moving in, the hippies and the artists moving into Santa Fe. Now, Santa Fe and Taos had a a long-time art colony kind Mm -hmm. of history, but it was was very art-oriented and not so much into the whole hippie, uh, psychedelic, spiritual movement, New Age kind of energy, which we were part of the forefront of. So it felt like... um, a, a kind of sleepy town mm-hmm. in those days when we moved there. And we rented a big old adobe house uh, for $50 a month, I think. And we lived there semi-communally with various other people that came and went. It mm-hmm. was a big old house. Um, and it felt very earthy to me. It felt very earth month. Those were my earth mother years. Those were the you know, wholesome, eating good foods and practicing yoga and uh, chanting and looking, still looking. I'm still searching for my spiritual path, but Mm -hmm. I know I'm on a spiritual path, but it hasn't totally crystallized for me. But it felt so wholesome. It was the good, good, be honest, be a good wholesome person back to the earth grow i had one of my first gardens grow your own food right type of life and the yoga was coming in because yoga in hinduism had been brought in by a couple teachers but there wasn't there hadn't been tibetan buddhism hadn't been necessarily no, brought not in. yet um in the santa fe years i met Oh, now, Yogi Bhajan was oh, my first yes. yogi teacher. And um, anyone who knows the Sikh movement of yoga in America will know that name, Yogi Bhajan. Mm-hmm. So he had somehow just arrived in America and in Santa Fe. And on the summer solstice of, I, I'm going to say it was 69, probably, he was leading yoga classes up uh, at the Aspen Meadows above Santa Fe. Huge yogi uh, and hippie um, event. Right, big gathering. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I, I studied, in the beginning, I studied yoga with Yogi Basha. And that appealed to you? What appealed to you about it? What did you like about it? I liked... Um, I liked 
the discipline of a path. I liked, you know, feeling like I'm not just kind of hunting around randomly on my own. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of structure uh, and discipline to this particular path. And when you do the yoga, you feel good. I mean, it, it, it it's spiritually uplifting, mm-hmm. mentally uplifting, physically uplifting. I mean, you feel good. They're 3H organization, healthy, happy, holy. Mm. That's what it make, made you feel. It made mm-hmm. you feel like, and you were eating, you know, good, wholesome food, and you were invigorating your body, and, yeah, it felt, it felt uh, good. The Buddhism didn't come until around 1970, and uh, Rachel was born in January of 1970, a home birth. Mm-hmm. Natural. Natural home birth. Home birth. Um, And in the middle of 1970, we moved up to the mountains, to churches, New Mexico. And somehow living in the mountains had been calling me for, I think, ever since we moved to New Mexico, particularly, and maybe even before that, and I, I think there's something related that to, you know, how the yogis always meditated in the mountains mm-hmm. and the, the great gurus were in the Himalayas. It was, I had some great attraction to living in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so we moved to a little adobe cabin up at Truchas, New Mexico. Um, and this little cabin had uh, no utilities of any kind. It was it was a little box built out of dirt, really. Mm-hmm. Out of adobe clay. With a wood floor. Right. Um, and it had one of those wonderful old wood-burning kitchen cook stoves mm-hmm. and a smaller stove in the other room for heat. And it had no electricity, no running water, no natural gas, no toilet, no bathroom, just this little adobe box. Wow. And I loved it. I know you did. (laughs) (laughs) I totally loved it. I look back on that year that I lived in that cabin with my baby, Mm -hmm. who was about six months old when we moved in, and we were there for a year. I look on that as as one of my favorite years of my life. That was chop wood and carry water. Right. Literally. Literally. We had to uh, go into the town with big uh, containers to get water from a well in town. And uh, Jerry and others would go into the forest and gather wood and have a big pile of uh, wood out front. And when I needed wood, I would go out and split wood and carry it in to build the fires. Mm -hmm. And I was just really, I just loved that year. It turned out that uh, Rachel, the baby, and I were alone up there a lot of the time because uh, Jerry still felt that we needed to have some money, <laughs> even though I'm pretty sure we got food stamps for food. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a people person, so he still needed to be in town and play music. And Did he work at the guitar shop at that time? No, he no. worked at the guitar shop, and he played with a band called the Family Lotus. Mm-hmm. And so he was gone a lot, um, you know, over overnight, days at a time. Mm-hmm. So I was alone a lot of the time, and I was totally happy and content. Were you meditating yet? 
I was meditating. I had started meditating several years before, still um, kind of making it up as I went, mm -hmm. you know, trying reading uh, and talking to other people and figuring, trying to figure it out. But that was when the Tibetan Buddhism walked into my life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, all these significant things just seem to walk into my life. Right. <laughs> Things that I'm, I know I'm searching for, but they just come knocking on my door. I like to believe that the energy and vibration that you're sending out is receptive to what you need. Yeah, I believe yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So there I was in a little cabin one day up uh, in the mountains, and um, some neighbor came over and said, Hey, there's, uh, there's Tibetans over at so-and-so's house. Come on, you know. And I said, Oh. Well, let's go and see what that's all about. So that was uh, 1970, late or 71 early, uh, and I met my first Tibetans. And those Tibetans turned out to be the, the secretary to the head of the Nimapa sect, uh, a fairly significant, okay. important lama. And we found out that he was staying at someone's house in, in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. Now, this secretary, though, met with a few of us up in Truches and gave us a meditation instruction and gave us a mantra to recite, mm. a Tibetan mantra to recite. And did it feel, was there a feeling that you had that was, that was like, this is it? Yes, I think, um, I don't know that I was ready on that day to say this is it. Mm -hmm. But I definitely felt like, uh-huh, now it's, now it's, uh, it's coming. Mm -hmm. it, it's getting closer. It's, you know, yeah. It feels right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so we went down to Santa Fe and, and met this high lama who uh, gave us some further instructions and meditations. And I would say that that marks the beginning of my officially being a Tibetan Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And I do feel... I felt it at the time, and now, what are we, 50 years later, it seems obvious to me you know, that yeah. this, this is my path, uh, karmically, <clears throat> however you want to understand that, mm -hmm. um, and that that was the direction I was searching for all those previous years, right. and that when the time was right, and the Tibetans started coming to America, mm -hmm. Uh, it came and knocked on my door. Right, right. And that has been my focus ever since. I've, I've not been looking for anything elsewhere. Yes, you are still a practicing Buddhist today. Yes. Very, very significantly. Well, it is the main focus of my life. So let's go back to that pilgrimage in 1978. Um, so now you've now you've you've have a teacher. Kalu Rinpoche is your is your teacher, and he's come. Yeah, to in Santa 1973, Fe a, few times. An, a different High Lama, Kalarimpeche, came to Santa Fe, and I immediately felt that he was my teacher. Mm -hmm. I felt that um, you'll hear stories from many, many students that when they meet someone and say, "Yeah, he's this is this is my teacher." Um, I told I've told stories of in one of the episodes is the story of when you went to India 
and I had my prayer prayer cords on and that my grandmother didn't like that, that that didn't feel appropriate to her because she was Christian and this didn't match up. And, and that sort of Christian trauma for me that I went through. But as you tell these stories, I'm coming back to my mind of as a little girl, how, how beautiful the people were, how beautiful and compassionate and like vibrant with love the Buddhist monks were. And just what a special time that was of the colors and the, you know, it was, it was so new that there wasn't this whole structure that said, you have to be on the outside. You know, these people are very special, so you can't be close to them. We were all very right up close and personal with, with the main people. And what a, what an incredible opportunity that was. Yeah. We had, um, uh, we, we had some lamas that actually stayed at our house, our very humble Mm -hmm. little house. And, uh, Rachel was three and four years old and she would climb up in their laps and, Mm -hmm. uh, very, very intimate and relaxed and, yeah, comfortable and, um, they would hold, uh, the lamas would hold interviews just sitting on a bed somewhere with people. Um, sometimes we set up shrines for certain ceremonies or events, but these shrines were just like, you know, a coffee table that had been covered over with a nice piece of cloth and mm-hmm. a, a few candles and flowers. I mean, I remember that. Very, very simple, um, very relaxed mm-hmm. and very intimate feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So then you were circling back to being in India in 1978. So, uh, so I met Kalaram Shea in 1973. Began uh, I, I became the first director of a center, a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center in Santa Fe, um, and began very serious study and practice mm-hmm. regimes. And then at one point, um, Kalarim said something in one of his talks. He didn't live there. He he lived in India, but he made uh, maybe at least three trips to the Americas. And on one of those occasions in a retreat with him, he said something about how you get to India is uh, you look on a map and then you buy an airplane ticket and then you get on the plane and you go. And um, that especially triggered my dear friend Kate to say, well, we're going to India, which of course was something I always wanted to do. Um, just like living in the mountains. I mean, let's like going to India, of course, if you're a spiritual seeker at some point, you have to go to India because that's the mother of all spirituality in yeah. terms of Eastern philosophy. Yeah. But you guys had little kids. Yeah. We had little kids at that point, uh, I had Rachel, who was eight, and Kate had Her August, who was yeah. eight, and um, Blythe, who was like six. Mm-hmm. And we had no money. <laughs> of course we had no money. <laughs> um, and so the idea of going to the other side of the planet, leaving the kids behind, um, was pretty incredulous. Right. But intention is the key to everything. 
Yes, it is. If you set your mind to it and you aspire to it. And you do the action steps. And then you, right. You may not know what all those steps are going to be, but you start. Right. And for me, at that point, I was a, a jewelry maker. I did silver and gold smithing work in Santa Fe. So for me, at that point, the first step was to make and sell more jewelry. And I swear that once I set my intention that I needed to get enough money to go to India, the orders just came knocking on my door. <laughs> that energy, yeah. I swear they did. It was like all I had to do was sit at my workbench and keep hammering and soldering. And the orders kept coming, and I accumulated enough money, which was like $1,400 for an airplane ticket and maybe another... I feel like it was 3000 in total, which was a ton of money back then. Yeah, I don't even know if it was that much. It was like 1400 for the ticket, and maybe I had 1000 more for mm -hmm. expenses for three months. Right. Yeah, but it happened, and then we bought the ticket, and then we got on the airplane, and then we went. And then there you were, <laughs> circumambulating a stupa. Yep, and about a month later, we're up at this monastery, in the mountains, in the fog below Darjeeling, and I'm circulating this stupa saying, how did a nice girl from Oklahoma end up here? Because it, there was no way my mother, who was still living at the time, could possibly comprehend. Mm -hmm. Now, she loved me and she supported me. She was a prime example of unconditional love. Mm. I'd say by the age 16, she had, like, given up trying to understand me or or think that I was going to turn out to be anything that she had in mind. Right. But she never quit loving me. And I would say that she was um, mostly mystified by my life and my choices. And they were not ones that she would have made for me or would have made herself or was very comfortable with most of the time. But she didn't, she never stopped loving me. And she didn't, she didn't hassle me. She didn't um, persecute me. Right. She just loved me. But I thought of her as I was circumambulating that stupa and thinking there's just, she tried very hard to be a good mother and raise a good girl. Mm -hmm. You know, and instill in me all those values that I described earlier, honesty and hard work. And She would never possibly be able to understand what I was doing in this place in India. It's such an interesting story of the, the pull that we have to do what our heart's desire is and, and the ability to separate from what our parents think is the right or most comfortable thing. And the beauty of grandma loving you anyway, and still being present for you, even when it didn't align with what her things are, but that you are such an example. And this is why I wanted you on the podcast, because you're such an example of somebody who had a pull of a true self and just it unraveled and unwrapped and, and made its way, you know, through, through the pieces. 
And, and while you were in India, it was also the separation of your marriage from my dad, because it was clear that as much as you were friends and loved each other, that you just, you needed a different life for you to be your whole self. And you've always been like that, that you needed that. And that's always been an inspiration to me to do that for myself. Even when I was in darkness, you loved me anyway. Yeah, maybe Rachel has discussed it earlier, but I just want to say that my separation and, and divorce from her father, I always think belongs in the Guinness Book of Records as the most congenial divorce ever. It turns out that that's true, because I just thought that was normal. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we always loved each other, and we uh, decided mutually that we just had different aspirations and lifestyles that were not supporting each other by living together. Mm -hmm. And we separated with great love and peace and gentleness and are still best of friends. It's a, it's a very lucky special thing. Yeah. So it's such a phenomenal story of how you did that. And then for you, Buddhism, I mean, we talk, I feel so lucky having, grown up with the ability to have that level of spirituality in my life and that Buddhism for you has just been such an important part of your life. And it really has been the foundation, not only of, of going to India, but um, every decision that you make has the foundation of how is this going to support my spiritual journey? How is this going to support my spiritual life? And so even when we went to, um, you went to graduate school, when you came back from India, got your PhD and worked in science, Buddhism was still the piece that was fundamentally important for you to make sure was in your life. She's nodding her head. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> so talk a little bit as we sort of close up. When you look back on those days, what do you think is the element of what bring, you know, if, if someone's in that space of not knowing which direction to go, is there an element that you had that brought you there? Was there guidance? Was there listening? Was it intuition? What do you think that was for you? Or just the curiosity and the willingness? Well, this is going to sound trite, but you know, there are a lot of trite phrases that are very profound. And this one is, follow your heart. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're at those crossroads and you don't know which way to go, don't try to figure it out in your mind. Don't try to figure it out logically. You have to go inside your own body and and feel feel which direction is is pulling you mm. it can be subtle it can be it can seem very illogical uh quitting my job you know for monsanto was very illogical uh, I, I was making a lot of money you know just to one day quit um and I, I've done similar things at other times in mm -hmm. my life where I've just quit what from the conventional 
point of view was secure or comfortable and just gone in the direction that I wanted to go, that I felt. That made me happy. That that, that was pulled me. Uh-huh. That's perfect. I have this, um, I suppose, you know, sensible people would think is um, nonsensical um, belief that everything will work out. It, it seems for 74 years now that the cosmos has provided for me. Mm-hmm. I've certainly worked hard at different times at different things Mm -hmm. but it just always felt like everything was coming to me as I needed it and that I was always provided for I've never felt like the bottom fell out from under me and you have an enormous gratitude for that you've you've talked about that a lot in in our talkings and the the real sense of awareness and gratitude that you have in that that's true for you. Yeah. And, you know, I don't understand why I feel like I've been so fortunate and I know so many people in the world struggle both, both physically and mentally and just on the level of surviving. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am extremely grateful. And I, and I have confidence in it. I think that's a key. That's the power of believing and having faith. What a fantastic Mother's Day conversation <laughs> to have my listeners get to know my mom more, which gets to know me more. And for me also to hear these stories again as a reminder of how you got to where we are today, sitting in your beautiful living room in Louisville, Colorado, the day before Mother's Day. Having had a lovely lunch and yeah. conversation about everything from death to, I don't know. There was a long list. Ancestry, death. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other podcast about your current state of spiritual questions yeah. that are about the next the next phase what happens next yeah yeah well thanks for joining me today i love you very much mom i love you thank you until next time namaste thank you for listening i hope this episode offered you tools guidance and inspiration on your journey to recover your soul for more information please visit the website recoveryoursoul.net There you can find more about Rev. Rachel, book coaching or spiritual counseling sessions, read the blog, listen to her music, connect to social media, as well as subscribe to receive updates. We thank you for supporting the production of this podcast by donating on the homepage. We hope you'll follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become part of our transformation community. The Recover Your Soul podcast and its content is for educational purposes only and is not allied or representative of any organizations or religions. It's based on the opinions and experience of Reverend Rachel Harrison. Recover Your Soul claims no responsibility to any persons or entity for any liability, loss, damage, or cause alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of its use. Applications or interpretations of the information represented herein. Take what you need and leave the rest.